What is up, everybody, and welcome to the Lockdown Nuggets podcast, part of the Lockdown NBA Network. I'm your host, Adam Mades from DNBR, where you can subscribe for $5 a month to get access to all of our premium content. Today's late-arriving edition of the show is going to be on the loss to the Indiana Pacers. There was a lot to it, and unfortunately got tied up with some other things and, and was unable to get this one out to you in time, so I apologize, but hopefully this will provide a nice um, sort of look at what was happening right before the Nuggets hopped back into a game on Monday night, back-to-back, their third back-to-back in a row um, at Minnesota. I will, of course, be over on DNVR doing a live post-game show on Periscope, so if you're following us on Twitter, and if not, hop on Twitter just to watch these lives. They've been a lot of fun, and I think tonight's is going to be just like that, so hopefully with a win. It's always more fun to do it from the winner's lounge than the loser's lounge, but let's get into it, um, because I know you've been waiting for this notebook episode, lots of detailed notes, watch the game twice. Just completed an episode of The List. If you're new to the show, I do a, a deep dive film study on every game that I, I or try out, not every game, but most games during Monday through Friday. And those act as a companion piece. So a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about today in the show is going to be up in video form if you want to see the video of the clips I'm talking about. Um, there was some incredible defense to start this game. I, It was funny. I was putting that out on Twitter last night, and I saw a lot of Nuggets fans saying, um... Oh, I don't know about, you know, if it was good defense, they were just missing shots. The, the, the Pacers missing shots. Well, I went back and rewatched it. No, Denver had some great defensive possessions. They were locked in. Now, one thing I think about, Denver has to play really hard to be good on the defensive end. I know some people are maybe think, okay, well, why does that matter? Of course. Some teams don't. You know, some teams, you know, if you have a Rudy Gobert um, or if you just have elite defenders all around the court, sometimes you can get by on physical tools. And, of course, playing hard makes takes everything to a, a higher level. But it seems like with Denver, especially with the group they have out there, they have to fly around and cover a lot of ground. And one of the questions you have is, can the team be both good offensive and defensive, offensively and defensively, especially when they have to use so much energy on the defensive end? And one of the storylines in this game tonight was that the Denver Nuggets shot three of 23 from the three-point line. Well, they played great defense to start this game, and nobody can make a shot. Are those things, correlation does not mean causation, but it's at least something to think about because it seems like there's just a lot of nights where it's, we just couldn't make shots. Oh, we couldn't make shots or whatever. Um... Jokic is very good as a post-up defender. That first play, DeMontis Sabonis, who's a fantastic player in his own right, um, tried to attack Jokic in the post, and Jokic stonewalled him like four times. He's he's. It's funny. If you just broke down defense into all these little subcategories, Jokic would actually get like an A-plus or a B-plus or higher on a lot of categories, yet he's still considered a bad defensive player. In the post, he's very, very, very good as a one-on-one post, post player. Not too many guys get him, consistently get him. Um, Craig and Grant made their presence felt athletically in this game. And this is a big thing, um, especially for Grant. One of the things I've talked about and probably will continue to talk about is that he's so long and so athletic, but he doesn't always feel long and athletic. He's not dunking on guys as much as you would think, um, he should given his tools. You think about Kenneth Freed, he was always catching bodies. Kenyon Martin always catching bodies. Jeremy Grant doesn't seem to, and it, it, we know how high he jumps and how long he is. And when he gets in the open court or or by his guy, there's a lot of above the rim finishes. But when he's trying to like go through contact or something, that doesn't always um you know doesn't always bear out. Um, so there were some high level rotations in this one, and I thought Grant and Grant and Craig in particular, you just felt how athletic they were in that first group. They were spry and they were making some great great plays. Some of these are up on on the list, especially the ones with Jeremy Grant or, or with Tory Craig. He was, you know, I rag on him a lot, but when his defense 
when he is having the defensive impact that he can have, he really does elevate the Nuggets on that end. Um, but the Nuggets couldn't score. Indiana was 0 for 9 to start this game, and Denver was only up 6 to nothing. So think about that. Michael Malone calls a kill when you get three stops in a row. Denver opened the game with three consecutive kills, nine consecutive stops, and yet they were only up by two possessions, only a 6-0 lead. That, to me, this is this is sort of that equation that Malone just, I mean, a fundamental disagreement between Michael Malone and me as an analyst in sort of this value of these all-defensive lineups. I, I just, we've seen the Nuggets, that lineup have good and bad games. We've seen them have good and bad quarters, and I would say that lineup had a good corner in the first one, a horrible one in the fourth. Um, but we almost never see them have great offensive quarters. And to me, that you just do the math. If you're sometimes good on defense but always bad on offense, it's probably not a great combination. Um, so you, Denver, it felt like they should have had an enormous lead, but they, but they didn't. Um, Jokic murders Turner. Miles Turner is a guy that um, I think he's a good player. Sabonis, I think, is better. It's kind of interesting. They, they sort of have um, a situation there where – you have a high drafted player in in Miles Turner, and you have a lower drafted player in Sabonis. Well, Sabonis might be the better one. In fact, I don't think might he is the better player. And you've taken all this time to develop both of them. If I were the Pacers, I would maybe try to look to move Miles Turner and just roll with Sabonis. I just think he's that good of a player. Um, but Jokic has always murdered Miles Turner, and uh, in this game it was no exception. He just he he doesn't fear him at all. It's like he's got him timed and figured out perfectly, and he just goes at him over and over again. Jeremy Grant's off the dribble game is interesting. He took a guy, I can't it might have been Sabonis or it might have been Turner. He took somebody off the dribble and finished at the rim. And we've seen this a few times now. It's not pretty, but we've seen him kind of put the ball on the court and use those long strides and that long sort of not like high jump but long leaping jumps to his advantage and get to the basket. He looks to me like a guy that has a very strong and sturdy foundation for that skill set uh, to be an off-the-dribble guy, but has never really developed it or cultivated it. And I'm curious to see if Denver does move forward with Jeremy Grant as their long-term piece. I'm curious to see if they try to cultivate that a little bit more because right now I'm not sure I would say it's a well, it's a, a weapon. I'd say it's more of a surprise, like it's a pleasant surprise from time to time. But they might be able to turn that into a weapon. So it's like, oh, no, that's what Jeremy Grant does. He he. You put a, a big body on him. If you get that switch where he has a center on him, he's going to take him off the dribble. I'd, I'd be curious because there's something there that he can work on if, it, if it's not too late in his developmental curve. Moving over, um, P.J. Dozier, really, this was a – I thought he had a great first game, a bad second game, and this one I think was somewhere in between, probably more on the good side. Um, he had a play, and this is on the list. I actually tweeted it out. I always try to give like one – clip on Twitter that's like a teaser you could see so you know what the list looks like but the one I, I teased today for free PJ Dozier has this play where he and it's also on our YouTube page so if you follow DNVR's YouTube page you also get that one clip for free he had this play where um, he's back guarding uh, TJ McConnell on the wing it's transition he's sprinting back and he notices that nobody had picked up the ball. Whoever the ball handler was is starting to run downhill towards the rim. And he sprints over to stop the ball and stays with him until the rotations are made and everybody kind of matches up and then he gets back. That's a heads-up play. For example, Michael Porter Jr. never makes that kind of play. And he's, half the time, he's the one that's lost his guy in transition. So 
B.J. Dozier, not to like compare it and like just to point out Michael Porter Jr., there's a lot of players on the Nuggets roster, in particular in the lineup he was playing with, Malik Beasley, Wancho Hernan Gomez, Michael Porter Jr. There's a lot of guys that don't recognize and think on the fly in transition, but P.J. Dozier, he's just a – I think he's a very heady player, and, and there's a really nice solid foundation in place for him to, to develop into a very – a very useful weapon and tool, and you saw that in that that possession. It was such an impressive, like, just floor balance recognition, getting to the right, physically able to like sprint into position and cut off the lane to the basket without compromising, you know, the half court defense. It was really really nice. In the second quarter, and this is on the list as well, and this is maybe my biggest sort of note about the Nuggets offense this season. They don't do a very good job, in my opinion, of having those well-timed backside actions. And what I mean is you run a pick and roll on one side of the court, say the right wing. In this case, it was the right wing, the, the example that I have up on the list. But if you get a nice like pick and roll, 1-5 pick and roll on one side and it doesn't work and you reverse the ball to the other side, the timing of your cuts on that on that backside are so important. That's how you get the ball popping, and that's how you break down the defense. If you wait too long or if there's clunky, if, if everybody's not sort of on the same rhythm, they're not feeling the same rhythm of a possession, then the defense gets to catch a second. Remember, so much about half-court offense is gaining a half-step on the defense. So if your timing on when you reverse the ball and get into that secondary action – is a half step slow, then the defense that that whatever you've gained, you've just given up and you've allowed them to reset. There was a great example of this with that second unit where the timing of Michael Porter Jr.'s cut, Wancho's reversal, and then P.J. Dozier stepping into the handoff was so perfectly timed that it's nothing special. You watch it and you go, okay, this was nothing, nothing really happened. But what it did is it forced everybody on the defensive end to rotate into new assignments all without a, a second he of hesitation to sort of get set. And then when they reversed the ball again back over to Will Barton for another 1-5 pick and roll, this time it had happened so smoothly and in such a good rhythm that Will Barton was able to get downhill going one-on-one. -on -one. That's the number one thing that I think is missing, and I think Gary Harris is the best example of this. He's never sprinting into those handoffs on the weak side. So if you have a Jokic-Jamal pick-and-roll on one side and you reverse the ball the other, other way, or you know, say you hit Jokic on the short roll but he doesn't have a lane to the basket, so he pulls it out and tries to go the other direction now on the backside for an action – if you don't have proper timing on that, then you allow the defense to get set. And I think with Gary Harris in particular, that's what's happening. He's not attacking the, a scrambled defense. He's allowing them to get set, and it's hurting them. And check out the list because there's a really good example. I think it'll make sense to you once you see it. Um, PJ has a lot of upside as an on-ball defender. I put this out on Twitter, but he measured at the combine or pre-draft. Actually, at the combine, he measured six foot five and a quarter, and um with a 611 wingspan Shea Gilgis Alexander who is a top point guard prospect in large part because of his physical tools I mean he's a great player as well and he's developing into an even better player but why he was like a highly drafted prospect ninth overall I believe and probably should have gone even higher if you look about I mean he might be a top three or four player out of a very loaded draft what makes him such a great prospect is that he is six foot Almost six foot five, so a quarter inch shorter than PJ Dozier, and has a six eleven and a half wingspan. So almost identical body types. Dozier a little bit stronger and sturdier, which I think is even better. But uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander a little bit thinner, but similar wingspan, similar heights. That that's a big deal. I think that makes um you know PJ Dozier just 
at his worst defensively is is useful because of his length and his size and his mobility. So to me, I look at a player like that and I go, there's something there that is worth investing time into. Um, Monte Morris, a great player, and I and and I'm by no means low on him. I think he's a very uh, a well above average backup point guard. But you look at his physical tools and you go, okay, where can he get better? One of my questions coming into the season for Monte Morris was, how much better can he get as a player? Because he already has a great assist to turnover ratio. He already shoots forty percent from the three point line. Um, he already has a floater, although his floater hasn't been great this year. What else can he do physically? He's a little limited. Well, you look at PJ Dozier. He's a very, very good player, but he could add to his shot. He could add to his his handle. He could add to his defense. I mean, he's just he's got so much upside. He's already, I think, a very good player, but he's got so much upside physically that it's at least worth, in my opinion, Denver investing a little bit to him. Now, Harrison Wynn said that he expects PJ Dozier to be on the team, the roster next year. I think I might be there. I think I might be a PJ Dozier fan. I need to see more. I don't feel like I have a great read on him, but I've seen enough to at least be intrigued that I'm, I'm going to be glued to him. He's maybe he's maybe the second most interesting player right now behind Michael Porter Jr. Just in terms of wanting to get a better read on what kind of player he is. But he was impressive in this game in ways that didn't necessarily show up in the box score. Um, Justin Holiday did a great job of boxing out Michael Porter Jr. in this game. I asked Michael Malone if he feels that teams have scouted Porter differently before the game I asked him like is he now is there anything you're seeing that teams are doing now differently and he didn't really have anything specific but he did say that you know it's coming as he continues to score points teams will make adjustments I don't know that they've necessarily made any like I haven't noticed them loading up on it you know or anything like that on him or changing their scheme or anything anything like that I mean teams are still trying to figure him out just as we're all trying to figure him out but I will say, as an elite offensive rebounder, maybe Justin Holiday is just an elite defensive rebounder and defensive box-out guy, but he never missed an opportunity to box him out. And I thought that alone was very noteworthy because MPJ gets one or two putbacks in this game. Actually, he had one. If he gets two or three more putbacks in this game, maybe it's completely different. But Holiday, that part at least was certainly on the scouting report. Nuggets, speaking of the scouting report, if you followed what makes this play great, I should tweet that out again. I did it last Friday. I'll put it out again this week. It was maybe my favorite edition of what makes this play great. That's like a 10 or 11-minute video where I take something in the playbook. In this example, Michael Malone referenced uh, over the weekend the Michael Porter playbook, meaning a series of plays they go to for him that are, are great for him. And the Nuggets went, and so you want to check that out because it's really neat. And I think it'll, I had people on Twitter saying, oh, it's so fun that I can now point out this play. Like I I recognize it every time they play. And I think that's really cool. That's part of why I love doing what I do is sort of educating people about the game so they have a richer appreciation and understanding for it. Um, And and it was cool to kind of see the response that people had to what makes this play great um, up on DNVR for members only. Um, That they're like, yeah, I get to recognize that. Now I see all the pieces and I can kind of like, uh, just just understand the little the not not necessarily I don't want to say chess game but just kind of like the different things defenses are reading about that play and MPJ is reading about the defense um but they ran it for him this game and there was an interesting sort of opportunity that that fizzled out Justin Holiday f- completely fronts Michael Porter Jr. And when I say front, what I mean is if you picture an entry pass coming from the left wing and Michael Porter is on the left block, Justin Holiday just went in front of him, risking the over-the-top pass, but completely fronting him to take away that post-entry. Well, the, the best thing to do is exactly what Denver attempted but failed to do, which is PJ has the ball on the left wing. Michael Porter, or I'm sorry, Mason Plumley flashes to the elbow or the top of the key. 
You pass it to there, and now Michael Porter seals on the inside. And why this is the right, th- why this is better, there's two reasons this is better than just P.J. Dozier trying to throw it over the top. If you can get it over the top, go for it. But that's a risky pass because a lot of times there's a backside helper who could sprint over and either steal the pass or sandwich Michael Porter Jr. in a really tough spot on the block. One guy in front of him, one behind. But also because if you get it up to Mason Plumlee at the top and the backside guy in the right corner comes over to help on MPJ, Plumlee is in a great position to throw that skip pass to the corner and punish him. If he, so that guy has to stay home, and now you have an even better angle to get it over the top. Well, that's exactly what the Nuggets did. Get it to Plumlee. The MPJ seals, and the shot, the pass goes over the top right to the rim. I mean, Mason Plumlee led Michael Porter right to the basket, but Holiday got a little bit physical with him, knocked Porter a little bit off balance, and rather than just go right up into a little touch shot at the rim, he brings it down, tries to go back up, and gets a, a bl- shot blocked into a jump ball. And so it's a little thing, but it's one of those things that with a little bit more strength and a little bit more comfort I think I think MPJ is going to be able to kill at that play this is a Kevin Durant thing by the way Kevin Durant loves to post up because when he turns and faces and like falls away it's impossible to block it even if you're um you know Bull Bull couldn't block that shot if he even if he knew it was coming that's how hard it is to block a tall player like Durant or like MPJ but um so this is a Kevin Durant thing but Kevin Durant has developed the strength and sort of touch that bang bang play if you front quick reversal quick at the rim and then he's dunking on you or he's or he's laying it up mpj i think has the ability to do that he just didn't do it in this one um he's also got to improve on his footwork so i actually pointed this out in what makes this play great it was a subtle thing it wasn't something i highlighted but mpj really likes to to open up with his left pivot foot into his right. Is that right? Am I doing this? Am I thinking this right? Yes. Inside pivot. And and the reason, you know, a lot of players like to do that, especially right-handed players, they like to uh, to go to the, like, the right-footed jab step or whatever. Well, MPJ, when he does that, there's some moments when it's okay to do that, but he's been going a lot to sort of turning his back all the way to the court so he doesn't see it, but also shrinking the court inadvertently. And he had a very good example of this in this last game. I actually didn't highlight this on the list because it was too too little of a thing, but he, it's a it's a tendency where in the offseason when he gets with his one-on-one trainer and gets in the gym he's going to want to be a more comfortable opening with his left with his right foot as his pivot and his left as his jab because it's going to open up a lot more angles specifically on actions like that one where you're trying to get him a post up um Jeremy Grant oh this is a big note and it was on the list I put examples as well Jeremy Grant played bully ball in this game and I, and I've rarely seen him do it I was talking earlier about how his physical tools don't always translate and, and that's certainly true throughout the season and even at parts of this game but there were also parts that and I hadn't seen this a lot and I saw it two or three times in this game I put them all up on the list where he got the ball inside against McDermott and rather than try to like shoot a running hook around him or sweep or whatever he just bullied him like Shaq style banged him till he got underneath the basket and then pivoted all the way to the basket not like a jump hook but would would step through you know like up and under all the way through the basket and then get to the rim for the dunk on one for the layup on the other and to me I hope that's a point of emphasis with Jeremy Grant because he has the physical tools to be that guy. I want to see more and more of it, and it looked like it was a point of emphasis in this one. And then to end the the half, Torrey Craig made one of his best sequences of the year. Rotation all the way over, blocks a shot, saves it in bounce miraculously, then runs the court and gets the feed from Jokic. That was the highlight of his career and maybe the best sequence um of his like of his career really, not just not just of this season, but that was such an impressive two-way 
like there was like three or four things he did on that defensive play alone that that really jumped out. At Karen Locked On Nuggets Podcast, um, I'm, of course, Adam Matez from DNVR. Matt Moore taking over tomorrow. We had to mix up our schedules a little bit. He'll be on Locked On tomorrow and Thursday. I'll be there on Friday. Um, but we will be over at DNVR tonight doing a live post-game show on Twitter and Periscope. You're going to want to check that out. Um, and then, of course, I'll be it'll, be it'll be in podcast form on the DNVR Nuggets feed as well. Second half, things got ugly. Barton settled for some tough shots early in the third. Um, I think Barton, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, could Barton be point guard? I think last night was a great example of why he probably cannot be for long stretches. I think he can, like with a second unit or, or alongside, you know, a player that's more traditionally a point guard or whatever that can relieve him. But when he's asked to create over and over and over again, I think, you know, his his offense doesn't necessarily come to him and he can end up starting to force some things. So, in this game, he took some weird shots. He took some tough ones, and he was good early, not so good late. Um, Indiana was placing Monte Morris in that weak side help spot. This is an interesting thing. So not it's not just about – I try to tell people this. All of the teams sort of do similar things on both ends of the court. Offensively, like, you know, Indiana has some pet plays. I'll talk about here in a second one of them. But they have some certain things that they do. Denver has some certain things that are unique to them. But a lot of teams, there's a lot of crossover, if not exact identical plays, at least very, very similar actions. What's different and what really separates is the individual talents of the players, the individual weaknesses of the players, and then the tiny details. How high on the court do you set this action? Some teams at the elbow, others above the three-point line. Um, you know, Post on this side or that side or this spot or that spot. But another thing that you know, teams can do to give themselves an advantage on, on, on ordinary things is you can sort of arrange the court so that you have the guy you want to be in the most vulnerable spot. And I thought, Den I thought this was one of the adjustments Indiana made in that second half was they put Monte Morris in the spot to have to be the rotating backside help guy. And they had the personnel to be able to do it in part, thanks to like such a large sized point guard and Malcolm Brogdon, you can you, you couldn't have Monte on Brogdon. So you're going to have to have Monte on somebody else. Well, you stick like a TJ McConnell in the corner. Now Monte's in the in the opposite side corner, and he's got to rotate over and tag the rolling big when you run pick and roll, and he just wasn't big enough to do it. I mean, either it would end up into an unfavorable switch and everybody would have to scramble, or he would just be too small to have to both tag and then close out to the three-point line um, to show on one and then recover on the other because he's just running out, you know, little Monte Morris running full speed to sprint and try to block your shot. It's not that intimidating as, as say, maybe Jeremy Grant being that guy. So I thought Indiana did a great job of that and and kind of put him in a spot where he had to be subbed out at one point early, I think, to, to try to put more length on the court. That Wancho Michael Porter Jr. Beasley trio, it's just so it, it's a lineup so prone to mental lapses. It, I would love to see it, especially alongside Jokic. For some reason, they never play with Jokic, only with Plumlee, and it works. Like that second unit has really, really done some nice things. But if they're not making shots as they were not last night, they're prone to just some really, really boneheaded mistakes. And they had a half dozen of these, maybe more, um, in that third quarter, early fourth. That And Michael Malone started to lose his cool. I mean, we know Michael Malone now well enough to know, us as fans, and me covering the team and being around him, we know him well enough to know that he is extremely hot. He loses his cool. And I thought, you know, 
I'm always reminded of what Shaquille O'Neal said about Stan Van Gundy back in the day when he said, oh, he was a master of panic. On the sidelines, whenever things would start going wrong, you could really see how he would lose his cool and um, he would start to freak out and the rest of the team would freak out too. Well, I think Michael Malone has a little bit in this. And again, this isn't this is something that he has worked on throughout his career and he's, he's talked about it. But it's a lesson that I think, again, he could probably – it's one of those things that – you have lessons that you learn in life and you move on, and then you have things that you have to sort of wear around your wrist that remind you every day of, of, of a sort of character flaw that you have or leadership flaw. And Michael Malone, again, an A-plus coach, I think the, a near-perfect coach for this team, but this is a flaw of his. And he called two, what we joke we joke about this as the Nuggets fan base, rage timeouts, where he could just tell he was so so angry and so upset with the defense that he kind of runs on the court, yells at a guy, and, and just kind of steams to himself. And I thought when the Nuggets started losing hold of the rope in the early fourth quarter, I thought Michael Malone sort of set the tone for what became a very tight, very nervous, very mistake-prone defense. Um, and again, you, you know you know this from playing – Guys making mistakes and being punished for them is important. It's an important part of sports. Like there has to be discipline. There has to be like carrots and sticks, especially for young players. But when that when that stick becomes a guy losing his cool as a coach, to me, and I thought it it manifested itself in this game with young players, Beasley, Michael Porter, and and Wancho in particular. They just started to make even more mistakes, and it snowballed. They started passing up open shots, missing easy ones, and then continuing to make mistakes on the defensive end. And I, I thought watching the game live, but I especially thought go back, going back and rewatching it, that Malone had this level of panic in his eyes that the rest of the team sort of took on, and it became almost a self-fulfilling pro- prophecy. The broadcast crew, by the way, of the Pacers, also talking about this. It's kind of funny when, when they're talking about Denver starting to come on rattled over there as Malone steaming onto the court yelling at everyone. I really think there's something to that. Now, Malone was pissed for a reason. The Nuggets were missing tons of rotations and and rebounds and everything else in that fourth quarter. Basically, everything on the defensive end, um, they, they were blowing, but as a coach, I think you look in the mirror and say, okay, did my, the, how I handled that lead to a, a success? No. Then it could could something I have done differently have helped it? And I think in this case is probably a good example of that. Um, now, here's another thing that's interesting. So Denver falls behind. And I've talked about this, and to me this was the other biggest criticism. I th- this was a bad night for Malone, in my opinion. Um, another big criticism I had for him, you go in that Golden State game, you have that starting lineup with Torrey Craig, Jeremy Grant in there, and as – as was predicted on this show and has been predicted over and over again, that, that lineup fell behind by 20 points. You go with a lineup of of Malik Beasley, Michael Porter Jr., Will Barton, Jokic, and Mason Plumley, and you come all the way back in one giant sort of run. You come all the way back and end up winning that game in overtime. You play that lineup the last eight minutes of the game and in overtime, and you come back, I think, 19 points down with eight minutes to go, and you end up winning that game. That lineup didn't seem a single second. And, I, you know, I keep thinking about how Malone's advisors might approach the situ- the subject in, in a way that, it, you know, that really resonates with him. And here's the, here's the number one thing. I mean, Malone is right to want to inject defense into the game. But there's always these trade-offs. And if you say, okay, the field goal percentage or whatever, sometimes that doesn't always speak to it. But the Nuggets this season, in a fairly decent sample size, Turn the ball over 3% more when Jokic, Torrey Craig, and um, Jeremy Grant are on the court. Actually, I'm sorry. 
they three percent higher when Jokic and Craig are on the court, um, and the same numbers were true of last year. That goes up to four point three percent more when Grant and Craig are on the line on on the court with Jokic. Three percent of that alone is just Jokic turnovers. And this is a thing that has been steady for all of the Jokic-Craig pairings over the years. When those two are on the court together, Jokic turns it over a little bit more. Why? Well, he's fighting, he's shooting shots through double teams a lot more frequently. There's less spacing on back cuts and everything else because Torrey Craig basically creates a free safety situation where a guy's just playing free safety. So whatever value you add on the defensive end, in my opinion, gets negated by the fact that you just start turning it over and missing shots at a much, much higher rate. And maybe it's just in that that hopefully is enough evidence as well as just like general net ratings and everything else with those two to show that there's something to Torrey Craig really putting a wrinkle and Torrey Craig and Jeremy Grant together really put a wrinkle in what the Denver Nuggets try to accomplish on the offensive end. But even past that, the Nuggets fell behind in the fourth quarter, and they rolled out their defensive lineup that could never score in this game, let alone in other games. Remember, we talked about the starting group in this one being up six to nothing after four minutes, despite having nine straight stops, three straight kills, nine straight stops. Well, you fall behind by five points, and then you go to that lineup. It just doesn't make sense. It always struggles to scale, and if you need to, to score, and if you come back. Um, with it when you're down, I just I didn't think that was a very smart game plan. So unfortunate that we didn't see better. Um, a couple quick loose notes. Jeremy Grant did a great job of crashing the offensive boards, um, it, but at the same time, the defensive end, the Nuggets were getting killed on the boards. And and at first watch, I thought that had more to do with just getting beat in the pick and roll and beat in uh, off the dribble, and that was certainly a part of it. But there was also some of just like Denver not putting bodies on people, including Jokic. Sabonis got rolling in that second half, and I thought just absolutely ate Jokic's lunch down the stretch. And you could see Jokic was very frustrated. He was frustrated in the locker room after this game as well. You could tell he was um he was a little bit upset. But that's how you lose a game. Denver has a chance to bounce back, and as always, I'm going to be curious to see if there's any adjustments Michael Malone makes either to the rotation and the lineup or maybe just to some of the the combos that he staggers behind the starters we'll find out together thanks for tuning in everybody we'll be back again uh, like I said Matt Moore taking the show tonight I'll be over on the DNVR Nuggets podcast and the DNVR Nuggets post game show live on, YouTube, on Twitter and Periscope we'll see you everybody over there <laughs>